Uh, good morning. Just a quick public service announcement. You got two weeks, folks, 14 days to buy me a Christmas present. <laughs> totally kidding. Totally kidding. So this morning, we're going to stick with the Psalms uh, as we have been in these last few weeks. I'm going to move this Bible. We're going to stick with the Psalms, but this morning, I want to try to make a case for Psalm 98 being a Christmas psalm. So in the realm of Christian hymnology, okay, hymns, Isaac Watts' Joy to the World stands as one of the most beloved hymns ever written. While this hymn has become a mainstay during the Christmas season, it is actually a kingdom hymn that celebrates Christ's second advent, His second coming, and the establishment of His reign. Watts' inspiration for this hymn came from Psalm 98, a psalm that praises the Lord for a great victory over Israel's enemies. So breaking it down, and I believe it's in your, your uh, insert in the bulletin, we're actually going to look at three themes of this particular hymn. And those themes are salvation revealed, salvation celebrated, and salvation anticipated. So let's begin with verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 98. A psalm. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done wonderful things. His right hand and His holy arm have gained the victory for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His loving kindness and His faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of God. Amen. The occasion warrants not just any song, nor does it call for something repurposed. No, it calls for what? A new song. The Hebrew word hadash represents something fresh and dynamic. It would have been absurd for Miriam with her timbrel to conduct the music of the daughters of Israel to some old sonnet that they had learned in Egypt. In after times when Deborah and Barak had routed the hosts of Sisera, they did not borrow Miriam's song, but they had a new song for the new event. There must be new songs on new occasions of triumph. Why was a new song warranted? What was the occasion? We're not sure, because no information was given by the Psalter. We simply have a psalm, as shown in the Word. And this, this is the only one given that simple title with no other explanation in all of the psalms. Theologians have speculated that its origins came from the victory of the Medes, 
and Persians over Babylon in Daniel chapter 5 that led to the return of the Jewish exiles to their land in Ezra chapter 1. Yet some of the vocabulary in the psalm reflects the language of Isaiah the prophet, who in chapters 40 through 66 wrote about the exodus after the Jews, I'm sorry, the exodus of the Jews from Babylon. Regardless of why it was written, it speaks of praise to God for his work. Not just any work, but his work of salvation in widening circles. First for Israel, then the earth, and finally all of creation. The second part of verse 1 says, For he has shown, or for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. So, where is Christmas in this particular psalm? Before that case is made, we first must see Christ in the psalm. His right hand and his holy arm. Now, some versions of the Bible, in particular, or maybe even yours, they actually have his, either in upper or lowercase forms, which can cause one to wonder who he is or was. But when we better understand the original Hebrew, it's simple to see that the right hand and holy arm belong to God. The phrase, his right hand, is yamin, an instrument of delivering Israel. Now, I'm not sure, but I believe there's only one that did and can deliver Israel. Next, we see the phrase, His holy, which is Kodesh, apartness, sacredness, holiness, but of only one person, and that is of God. And then Arm Zeroah is an instrument of deliverance and judgment. Now, who can deliver? Yahweh. Yahweh. Who can judge? Yahweh. So deliverance, holiness of God, it all equals salvation, which then points to whom? Christ. Additional evidence supporting the messianic nature of these verses of Psalm 98, 1 and 2 emerges as we observe parallel prophetic imagery in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 10 says, the Lord has bared His holy arm in the sight of all nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Therefore, the term holy arm, synonymous with the right hand, represents not just a method, but the very person through whom salvation is accomplished, and that's Jesus Christ. Verses 2 and 3. The Lord has made known His salvation... He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His loving kindness and His faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Now that we've seen Christ in the psalm, let me make a case for showing Christmas in the psalm as well. In two consecutive verses, the psalmist emphasizes the revelation of God's salvation three times. I did four. I meant three. Usually I do this, yeah, three times. Three times. So in those three times, it underscores and emphasizes 
the revelation of God's salvation in the unveiling of Christ, who embodies the very essence of God's redemptive power. The psalmist, in recollecting and acknowledging God's hand in past events such as Noah and the flood, Joseph in Egypt, and the Exodus, unknowingly prophesied the coming of Jesus and His ultimate salvation. This prophecy was made manifest as God utilized the psalmist's words as a means of looking forward to the time when Jesus, the very embodiment of God's salvation, would be revealed to humanity. In light of this, it's imperative to recognize that the psalmist's words serve as a testament to God's omniscient nature and His constant presence in the affairs of humanity. The importance of this cannot be overstated as it offers hope and assurance that even in the midst of turmoil and upheaval, God is always working to bring about His divine plan of redemption. This very revelation of Christ would come to be at the very first Christmas. How do we know this? Let's take a look. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, we see a man named Simeon. And Simeon offers a most awesome prayer that tells us exactly that salvation has come to the earth. Beginning in verse 21 of chapter 2, And when eight days had passed, before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So after Jesus' birth, in adherence to God's law, Joseph and Mary took him to the temple to present him to the Lord and to fulfill the obligatory sacrifice. Simeon, who was a devout man favored by the Holy Spirit, had received a divine promise that he would not pass away before laying eyes on the Messiah the Lord's Christ. Upon Joseph and Mary's arrival, Simeon embraced Jesus and promptly delivered 
a prayer. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. There's a possibility that Simeon was alluding to Psalm 98 in verses 30 and 31, affirming that though through Jesus' birth, God had unveiled his salvation to the world. Simeon's declaration underscores that the birth of Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Psalm 98, 1 through 3. This prophecy doesn't solely pertain to the method of salvation, namely Jesus' eventual death on the cross, but rather to the person embodying the salvation, Jesus, the Messiah. Hence, the psalmist's words penned under divine inspiration foretell the birth of Jesus as the moment when God disclosed his salvation to the world, our very first Christmas. Verses 4 through 8 of Psalm 98. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Shout joyfully before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar in all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. In light of the significant news of God's wondrous deeds, as stated in verse 1, it is only appropriate for the entire world to sing praises to Yahweh. The thrilling message of His unparalleled works extends to the farthest corners of the earth demanding the attention and the adoration of all nations as noted in verse 3. Therefore, it is humanity's obligation to extol His greatness and magnify His name with sincerity, acknowledging the unparalleled power and majesty of the Almighty. It is in this reverential posture that we can fully comprehend the breadth and depth of His wondrous, wonderful works and echo forth with unreserved praises. The shouts of verse 4 and 6 resonate elsewhere as the spontaneous cheer one might offer to a king or during a moment of triumph. These, this is the same term translated as shout in Zechariah 9.9, a prophecy that found fulfillment on Palm Sunday. We need not worry about being overly enthusiastic in praising the God of our salvation. The key is to ensure that our song emanates from the depths of our hearts. Otherwise, whether it be the human voice or the tones and sounds of instruments, they become mere noise in God's ears if they don't come from a joyful heart. Let our hearts resound loudly with praises for our triumphant Savior. With all our strength, let us exalt the Lord who has conquered every foe and led our captive selves to freedom. The most heartfelt praise comes from those who harbor the deepest love for Jesus. Frequently, we tend to believe we're singing a solo rather than participating in a symphony. 
However, being created in the image of God, as Genesis 1, 26 and 27 tell us, doesn't imply that only humans have the privilege of expressing gratitude to God for the gift of life and existence. We, humanity and creation, merely convey our appreciation in various ways. Psalm 19 reminds us image bearers to make room for other musicians. Psalm 19, 1 through 4 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line or sound has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. How often has somebody approached you and said, how can we know there is a God? Have you ever run into that conversation? I'm sure at some point we all have in some form or fashion. And my only answer is, take a look around you. Take a look at yourself in the mirror. How can you have a creation without a creator? I use grass as an example. Something so basic and something that we have to cut sometimes twice a day, it seems like. But consider grass. A blade of grass. How in the world does it grow? Well, it's watered. I don't know about you, but I'm too cheap and I don't water my grass. But it's watered mostly by the 100% humidity we have even in sunshine. Okay, so we've given it water. So what? How does it... How does it, how is it fed? A process called photosynthesis, which is awesome in itself and is a testament to God. Photosynthesis, sunlight, converts to sugar. Okay, all right, that's impressive. Where's that sunlight coming from? 11 billion miles away. How can you have a creation without a creator. And even that blade of grass is glorifying God. Even that grass is glorifying God. We're a part of a symphony. We're not a solo. And even if none of us spoke a word, all of creation would testify to the glory of God. The beautiful poetic depiction of praise emanating from inanimate creation is captivating, yet it is incomplete. Praise should also resonate from those who inhabit this creation, hinting at a reference that extends beyond just humans to possibly include the animal world, the world and those who dwell in it as spoken in Psalm 19. So we have salvation celebrated, and now we get into salvation anticipated. Verse 9, Before the Lord, for He is coming to judge the earth. Now granted, that's, a, that's the back half of verse 8. So let's back up to verse 8 for context. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord, for He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. 
The robust and profound praise depicted in this psalm psalm extends beyond acknowledging the marvelous things God has already accomplished. It anticipates the work He is yet to do. His righteous rule and reign promise to bring a much-needed reprieve to all of creation, which has endured the consequences of human sin and rebellion. James Montgomery Boyce wrote, I think of the way C.S. Lewis developed this idea in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In the first section of that book, when Narnia was under the power of the wicked witch of the north, the land was in a state of perpetual winter. Spring never came. But when Aslan rose from the dead, the ice began to melt. Flowers bloomed and the trees turned green. It is poetical writing, but it describes something that will happen. The rivers will indeed clap their hands. The mountains will indeed sing. And we will all join in. In the ancient world, justice was scarce. As unfortunate as it is, this reality persists even now. Judges could be swayed by bribes or influenced by personal ideologies and biases. The prospect of a forthcoming judgment characterized by fairness and equity provided significant comfort to those who were frequently oppressed and deprived of justice. It is also a significant comfort to us now, to whereas we may not be facing the same type of opposition, we are certainly witnesses to it. The psalm is a great pattern of praise, wrote G.C. Morgan, on a far too much neglected level in our day. We praise God much for His mercy. That is right, but it is a good thing to recognize His righteous rule and to praise Him for that. We all want a Savior, but few of us want a Lord. Because Lord implies submission. Lord is a master. We don't like that. We want to make our own decisions. We don't want to submit to any authority. But if you are going to submit to Him as your Savior, you must also submit to Him as your Lord. Psalm 98 captures the manifold nature of salvation, revealing its past accomplishments, celebrating its present reality, and anticipating its future fulfillment. The psalm serves as a timeless expression of praise and hope for believers, inviting them to join in the symphony of creation in honoring the God of their salvation. So where is Christ in this psalm? We see it very apparent. And even if we did not understand the verbiage of verses 1 through 3, by studying the original language, it makes it perfectly clear of whom it is speaking. So we see Christ. But where do we see Christmas? And we see Christmas in the fulfillment of the prophecy of verses 1 through 3, as stated by Simeon in Luke chapter 2. So my case is that Psalm 98 is a Christmas prophecy. Um, 
Prove me wrong. That's the challenge. But regardless, the beauty of this is hope. And that hope is only found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, as always, it is a privilege, a blessing, and an honor to stand before your people to share your word. Now, while I did not announce it in the beginning as I usually do, Father, I do stand up here with great fear and trembling to be able to rightly divide your word. Father, we are so very thankful of Psalm 98 and for the one who wrote it, whether it be David or somebody else. Regardless, it was through divine inspiration that whoever held that pen in eternity past was you. Father, we praise you. We glorify you. We thank you, just as we should, as your word tells us to shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Just as Isaac Watts wrote joy to the world, the Lord has come. Father, we anticipate your return. We eagerly await it as we say the words, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Father, we see the turmoil in this word, the injustice in this world. Father, we see the evil in this world. But our faith is in You, knowing that this is only temporary. Father, for those who have not bowed the knee to You as their Lord and their Savior, Father, I pray that they would not lay another minute. Father, we're not promised tomorrow. We're not promised five minutes from now. So, Father, for those who are seeking, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them. For those that are hurting, I pray, Father, that you would comfort them in only a way you can. For those that are sick, we ask for your healing as you are the great physician. And, Father, regardless of our circumstances, how bad they may be, how bleak our outlook appears, we praise you nonetheless, for you are worthy. We love you, Father, and we thank you for loving us first by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, thank you. Amen. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Josh. It's a good word. Amen.